Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Brian Stokes. He's a listener of the podcast. He messaged me and uh, I did an episode about ketamine because I, I told you guys I've been, I attended uh, a few webinars on uh, suicide prevention. And one of the webinars was about ketamine. And then Brian reached out and was like, bro, I did 13 sessions with electroconvulsive therapy. That didn't work. I've been taking antidepressants for 20 years. That didn't work. Um, and then I did took ketamine and that made the difference. I'm, 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 I'm excited to hear your story here. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Leo. It's an honor. Um, I've listened to you since January and we've exchanged emails and um, I'm glad to be here and share my experience. Thank you, brother. And so and this is also a testament to the listeners out there. You know, you send me an email, Leo Flowers, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I respond. And uh, mm -hmm. Leo Flowers 2000 at Gmail, if you have requests of things you want to talk about or just share your story, um, I love all of it. So thank you uh, for the support. And, and once again, thank you for being here, Brian. Um, so before we get into the ketamine, talk mm -hmm. to us about the electroconvulsive therapy. One, what is that? I mean, I know what it is, but just for the listeners. And two, what was your experience of it? Because I just read Sylvia Plath's uh, biography, and back in the day, ECT just seemed brutal. Yeah. What's your experience with ECT? And, and to begin with, Leo, I think everybody who's ever seen that old movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, has a little idea of what the fear and, and uh, uh, apprehension one may have when going into a, a forced, uh, you know, uh, convulsion like that. And, and they didn't do, make any attempts in that movie to, to soften it any. And it's, it's not like that. Um, and to give you a little background, I was hospitalized in 2020. And uh, it, during my hospital visit, the, uh, the suggestion was, let's do some ECT. Let's do some rounds of ECT and see if that's been, if that's going to be effective for you. And, uh, I said, yeah, I'm on board. Let's give it a shot because at that point, antidepressants weren't really making the difference for me. So, um, my experience was, uh, it was in a hospital setting, obviously. Um, when I was, I, I would go and, uh, we would, um, sit down and, and kind of a, consultation room. Uh, they would just ask me how I'm doing, how I'm feeling, um, you know, an attempt to kind of, you know, prepare me for what was going to happen. And then I actually went under general anesthesia. So they actually knocked you out during this whole process. Uh, so you're, you're not awake during it. And, and I don't know if everyone has that same experience, but that was my experience. So they put the electrodes on my head. And they would take me into uh, the room uh, and there's, there's a team there. Um, and then they would uh, kind of count down till I would lose consciousness. Um, and then at that point uh, I would go into my, the seizure, they, they would do it. And I think it maybe lasted for a minute. Uh, and then they would bring me to after, you know, after I'd been out for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, I would feel some muscle tightness, some tension. Um, and, 
Um, and, you know, one of the effects of it, Leo, is temporary memory loss. So, you know, my, my memory during that experience isn't 100%, but I can tell you that for the most part, afterwards, I was lethargic, a uh, little tired. I, w- I would get a ride home, I would take a nap, and then, you know, I would feel fine. So uh, you pretty much got to set aside the day, though, for, for whenever you go through one of those. And was there any uh, counseling or therapy that was associated with it? There was. Uh, during my hospitalization, we had group sessions and then one-on-one counseling sessions. And then during that time, I was also meeting twice weekly with a therapist. Um, and we didn't necessarily discuss the ECT aspect of it, but that was all part of kind of getting me out of the depressive state of mind, working on some healthy uh, habits and, um, you know, part of the recovery process. What changes did you notice from the first ECT session to the 13th? Cause you said you had 13 sessions. Were there yeah. any noticeable changes? I know you mentioned the lethargy. Did that stay with you the whole time, but were there any changes uh, in a positive direction? You know, I think if anything, it was more of a placebo effect because I did initially feel some uh, some relief from the rumination, from the uh, the downward spiral of thinking, um, and so initially it was positive. And they assessed through before every session pr- uh, after that. You know, how are you feeling? You know, is this working? And for the most part, I felt like. Yeah, yeah, this is working. I'm doing something positive to to uh, to uh, uh, impact my depression, to make a positive impact. And so um, I felt positive during the sessions. Um, but you know, once I got two or three months out, I realized it wasn't a silver bullet. The depression was still there. There was still something that that was missing. Yeah. Did you work? So did you have to go in every week to get the sessions done? I did. I went every, I went in every week. And from what I recall, Leo, um, I was initially going in, um, twice a week. I think it was Tuesdays and Thursdays. I don't think they wanted to do any more than that. Um, um, at the time. And, um, and that lasted from probably, uh, I guess it would have been the last week of, I'm sorry, the first week of January all the way through probably late February. And there, um, you, you mentioned that there was individual therapy and group therapy. Mm-hmm. What did those two uh, modes of therapy cover? Like, how are they different? So the group therapy covered coping techniques how to deal with depression, uh, how to deal with the rumination. Uh, why are you here? What are you experiencing? Uh, this was initially in a hospital setting because I was hospitalized for about a week. Um, so we covered, um, you know, a lot of, you know, how are you feeling? What's going on? What, you know, what, what are you doing to help you with these, with, with your depression? The individual therapy obviously focused more on my personal situation. Um, you know, what, what, you know, and I, I think the ultimate goal was 
hey, once you once you are through with ECT and once you are out of this hospital setting, what is your safety plan? What are you going to do to you know make sure we don't see you back in here? You know what? You know, are you, you know, they gave me tools, techniques, tips. I have a whole folder of things that they gave me um, to, you know, kind of focus on the things I can do to improve my mental state. Well, let's let's break those down, because I think, you know, I've, I've done episodes about safety plans and actually one of the webinars covered a safety plan and, and showing how that was more effective than having a, a suicide contract. Um, if you, if you're open to sharing what, you know, is it part of your safety plan? So I live in the great state of Texas and all my friends and neighbors all own firearms. I don't, I cannot own a firearm. I know that. And, uh, that's number one on my safety plan. I've never come close to even, you know, purchasing a gun or, or anything like that, but I just know I can't do that. Uh, number two on my safety plan is reach out to a loved one, a friend, uh, when I get into a situation that I feel like, you know, suicide is my only option. You know, this when su suicidal ideation and beyond that seems to be getting to where I can't, I, I can't, um, uh, function, then, then I, then I reach out. Hopefully I don't get to that point, but I do. I, I lean on friends. I lean on family when I get into that situation. And I would say those are probably the top two. And then probably third, uh, would be, um, you know, getting out, even when you don't feel like it, taking a walk, getting in nature, disconnecting from, from everything, um, and getting some time by myself um, you know, on a walk or out outdoors, getting fresh air. How, how you said that your friends and family are, are people that you feel like you can reach out to. How did you initiate this conversation of having mental health struggles? So my friends and family are pretty, pretty much aware of my struggle with depression. It's been something I've, I'm 50 years old. I've dealt with it for 32 years now. Um, and so everyone is pretty much aware, Hey, Brian struggles with mental health issues. And, um, it's, it's, um, you know, something that everyone's familiar with. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. Um, but now that they know that it makes those phone calls, it makes those connections a little bit easier. And I think they understand what perspective I'm operating from that I may have clouded thinking, I may have siloed thinking, and that I need to look at the big picture. Um, so it makes leaning on friends, leaning on family a lot easier once I got it off my, you know, now that they all know what I'm dealing with. When did this start for you? Take, take us through the backstory. Is this something you struggled with in your childhood? You said for 20, about 23 years, you've been struggling with this, but yeah. Uh, so actually longer than that, uh, I, I can, the genesis of my depression started in my senior year in high school. I realized something was different. Something was off. Um, I had, um, 
you know, not thoughts at that point in my life, I didn't have any thoughts of suicide or anything, but I just knew that my preferred mode of operation when I wasn't feeling right was to isolate myself. And for a number of years, I used sleeping as my escape. I don't use drugs. Um, not a big fan of alcohol, but I slept. And that was how I escaped the world. And there were points I, I can recall during my adolescence where my mom would come into my room and say, hey, it's, it's time to get up. You, you need to go and you, you need to be, you know, interact and be part of the world. Um, and so that uh, eventually developed into um, kind of just not feeling right. So I asked my parents, or my parents may have actually initiated it. They took me to a psychiatrist my senior year in high school, and uh, I was I was a high achiever in high school. I I was on the track team. I competed at a state level. Uh, I was class vice president. I was Mr. Outgoing. Nobody would have any idea that I was suffering from what I was what I was suffering with. Um, and my parents took me to a psychiatrist my senior year. They did that. Uh, I guess it's called the Roshark test. Uh, and I remember taking that and we went back to look at the results a couple of weeks later and they didn't define it or classify it as depression. They just said, Hey, it looks like, uh, you just have a lot of anxiety uh, because you're going to college in a couple months and you're making a big transition, you know, it looks like your self-confidence is off the charts, but it, it looks like you are suffering from a lot of anxiety. And that's what it was classified as. Um, and then I, sh I, I, after, after my freshman year in college, I realized it was a lot more than that. And, um, my freshman year in college, I, started getting into group therapy and uh that was sponsored through the through the school uh got on antidepressants that was my first first round with antidepressants your first year in college was the sleeping increased or were there other things you were doing that led you to believe that it's this is more than anxiety um i remember a particular moment my freshman year where I, I just could not function. Um, I, I was walking on campus and I just asked myself, why am I here? What am I doing? Um, I just had no sense of direction. I felt lost. And um, I just remember there's, there's something wrong with me. Why am I, why am I, why am I feeling this way? I don't recall that the sleeping affected me as much in college because I was so busy. Um, but I do remember a continuation of there's something different about me. Why can't I just enjoy life and enjoy this college experience like my friends and uh, my roommates are? Uh, why, why do I tend to isolate myself on the weekends? Uh, and not participate in some of the things that I should be. And I really started to kind of close off a lot. Do you feel like you're more introverted or extroverted? You know, I think my natural state is to be more extroverted. Um, I 
I enjoy a group setting. I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy getting to know people. Um, so I would say my default state is extroverted, but that oppression will force me to become more introverted at times. And how's your sleep been throughout all this? Have you always been a good sleeper? Have you had trouble sleeping? I've always been a good sleeper. Uh, I, um, you know, it's, it's, that's something that's never been impacted by this. And, and I probably tend to oversleep more than I should. Uh, I don't do it now, but throughout the course of my life, I've probably overslept more than I should. You don't snore or anything? Um, no, uh, yes, I do snore and I have had a sleep apnea study. You have, and what did it show? Uh, it did not trigger any, uh, any, no. any, yeah, that I was getting enough oxygen flow and everything. Wow. Yeah. So definitely something I've looked into. <laughs> is, and, and your family, has anyone in your family struggled with this? Um, not, none of my immediate family. Now I had a grandfather that for all intents and purposes had what they classified as a nervous breakdown. Uh, when my father was in high school, picked up and moved the family to, you know, in the middle of my dad's senior year. And, uh, and he struggled with mental health issues. So the basic understanding from my family has been, I inherited something from him. And I, I don't know if I necessarily believe that, but I think there, that, that could, that could, there could be some correlation there. Wow. You know, I would imagine if, you're growing up and, you know, you're sleeping a lot and you feel like, you know, what's my North star and what's the meaning of all this. Um, and then you're looking at your family and everyone else and they seem to be firing on all cylinders. Did you find later on that your perception of them wasn't as accurate as you thought? Meaning that it's, it's, it's very, um, common to think that everybody else is living this great life and so happy and enjoying life. And then when you get to know them a little deeper, you find out that they had all these different struggles that they were coping with. Did you find that at all in talking with your family or friends? Um, not so much my family and friends, but I have uh, since developed friendships. I, I say not so much with my family, but I have since developed friendships with people that struggle with some of the same things. And it's, you know, depression is diff. I, I tend to find that it's different for, for a lot of people. A lot of people experience it differently. Um, and I, um, so to answer your question, yes, I've, I've found that among my friend group, there are some that suffer from it and can identify. I can identify. We can identify with each other. That's beautiful. So with this, with the ECT, there was individual therapy. There was group therapy. Uh, you were given a safety plan. Um, mm -hmm. Was there, were there any other tools provided along with the ECT therapy? Um. You know, that's really all I can think of 
that was provided. Um, they, I, I do recall that they brought in a former patient, somebody who had suffered from, who had actually tried to commit suicide, somebody who had been hospitalized and um, had now, you know, was, was on the path to recovery. And they would bring him in to talk about how he had adapted and how he had, you know, I don't want to use the word overcome. Well, we're, co we're coping, right? We're not overcoming. Uh, we're trying to, but we're coping. Um, but he would talk to what he does to help cope with his struggle. And I found that to be very helpful. Um, you know, he, and I can't remember the specifics, but I know that part of this this uh, young man's journey was to give back and help others, give them tools, share his experiences. Um, and he did that not only with, with us at, in the hospital setting, but he did that. He did group classes, kind of like what you do, Leo, talking about your struggle, building a bridge for others that don't necessarily know all the tools and the resources available to them to get on the path to coping and recovery. So it, it sounds like that the electroconvulsive therapy was a, a pleasant experience, although you mentioned that um, there was also a placebo of it and just taking action and just feeling like you were doing something to improve your mental health. It, that's a good way to put it. That's a great way to put it. I felt like, hey, I'm taking some steps here. You know, this is outside the box. I'm trying something that, you know, at the time when I was reading the statistics had an 80% success rate for getting people into remission. And so, yeah, I think it was more of a placebo effect. Hey, I'm doing something. This is going to work and had some initial positive feelings. So let's jump ahead to the ketamine because uh, a lot of research compares uh, electroconvulsive therapy to ketamine and there's from the research that I've read, there's not a, a marked difference between their efficacy. So mm -hmm. they're, they're not saying that ketamine, they're not saying ketamine works better or worse than ECT. They're just saying there's not a significant difference in it. But your mm -hmm. experience, Brian, has been that ketamine has made the difference. Talk to us about uh, what your experience with ketamine has been. Sure. So um, I was under the care of a psychiatrist in Dallas, and her office uh, would administer ketamine to patients. And she had initially recommended it. I declined it because it did take out a significant portion of the day, and I was working at the time. So um, COVID, which allowed me to work from home, provided an opportunity where I could try ketamine for the first time. So this was actually in the summer of 2020. Uh, I started going to her office twice a week. And it was in the form of a nasal spray. Uh, and it was not Spravato, which is the brand name. This was a, a, a form of ketamine that was put together by, compounded by a pharmacy there in Dallas. They would uh, ship it directly to the office. Um, I would go in. Um, and, and uh, you know, twice a week, 
you go into a kind of a, you know, a spa like setting where you're in a separate room and you would administer the ketamine sprays, uh, you know, depending on, you know, what your dosage was, you would spray six, eight, 10 sprays into each nostril. Um, and then I would put on an eye mask and put on some music, no lyrics. And I would sit back and let the ketamine do its work. And as I like to describe it, uh, I felt like it was power washing my brain. I felt like it was getting rid of all the scale and the clutter and the bad connections. And, and I really felt like it was doing a deep cleansing on my brain is what I initially felt. And, and that's after the first session. Um, that was probably, yeah, I would say probably after the first session, I felt like that was, that was what was happening. Yeah. And and I've read that there's some feeling of dissociation that that comes with that. Did you experience that at all? I did, uh, but not after, not not on the first one. I think it probably was the third, fourth, fifth session. I started to feel that once we started kind of working up the dosage, uh, then I think I got into what you would describe as the proverbial. Brian, you're you're freezing. Oh, you froze on me, Brian. All right, so you cut out. Yep. Um, we cut out when you said it's the proverbial something, 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 something. So uh, go okay. back. All right, so go uh, and take. So uh, I experienced, though, I guess what you would consider the proverbial K-hole, where uh, you go into a disassociative state uh, and, you know, you feel like you're leaving your body and to a certain extent. And I remember being fearful of doing that. And uh, I had to talk to some people who had experienced ketamine. Uh, I, I felt like if I let go, that I would not be able to return to my body uh, or forget to breathe. And so there was some fear there. But once I experienced the going into that full disassociative state, that's when I feel like the recovery, Leo, really started to kick in. That's when I feel like the benefits of ketamine started to really do its work and uh, started seeing some significant difference in my attitude and my rumination and my overall outlook on life. So talk to me about the rumination. What were you ruminating about before and then what were the thoughts changed to after? Or how did you notice a change in, in the thoughts after? So my rumination tends to revolve around my career or lack of what I would determine career success or my, um, you know, my failures as a human and as, as a, as a partner. And so I, I tend to, 
you know, really be harsh and critical about myself and ruminate on that. Um, the ketamine, I guess, pulled me out of that cycle. Uh, and, you know, one way I describe it, uh, Leo, is that uh, when I'm in a depressive state, I don't have any hopes or dreams or goals or aspirations. But when I get into a remission state, or I get into a better state, I'm able to project forward and have some goals, some dreams, some aspirations. And that's when I feel like I know that maybe I've, I've achieved kind of a remission state. Do you have any other tools or techniques for projecting forward? Um, you know, that's, that's a good question, Leo. I, I probably don't. Um, I'm my, my natural state tends to not be as optimistic as it should. So I don't, I don't to answer your question. And those are tools I'm trying to develop. Are there moments besides outside of the ketamine use that you notice allow your brain to project forward? Uh, and I give you an example. When I get a massage, yeah. mm -hmm. I notice, and I get like these 90-minute massages, mm -hmm. I notice that my, my because I'm in that re very relaxed state, I start projecting forward. I, I see big picture. Uh, you know, I have billions of, of followers. I'm touring with this podcast. Uh, yeah. we're, we're in arenas stadiums you guys are buying t-shirts you know like just yeah. i mean it's just like big there's book signings there's big picture thing yeah um but that uh I, I don't i have to there's like some things that in spaces i have to put myself in to experience that yeah. have you have you noticed that for you are there experiences states places where you go wow, I'm really able to project forward here. Yes. Yes. There are, there are spaces. And, uh, um, I would say I, I like to walk. I think there's nothing better than getting out of nature, uh, you know, throwing on your favorite podcast and going for a walk. And I think when I go for a walk and I clear my mind, that allows me to project forward. And there's other things in my toolbox that I use as well. I'm, I'm a man of faith. I pray. You know, I do a daily devotional. That allows me to project forward. Um, I would say uh, I also realize that there's things in my toolbox that if I do something that it's going to pull away from the projecting forward, like alcohol. I can't drink alcohol anymore because of, of the depressive things. Uh, or a depressive state that it can cause. Um, but I would say community and support, also uh, being part of a, of a group of men that I go to on a weekly basis where we talk about life, that helps me to project forward. Um, you know, listening to mental health podcasts, um, some of those things, and sticking to a routine, that helps as well. All of those things help me to to kind of project forward and, and, and see, and, you know, set goals and look forward to things. I, I, you know, I had, uh, some doctors on very early on, I think the first year I was doing this podcast too, um, they were talking about, 
ketamine and therapy. Like one was the doctor who administered it and the other was the therapist who talked to you. Are there things, I, I'm assuming that you worked with a therapist also uh, in this ketamine session. Are there other tools that you were provided with that have been beneficial to your mental health or whether it's a way that they helped you to reframe things or behavioral changes to improve your sleep or your health or anything? Uh, there, there wasn't so much of that. And I know that there's ketamine assisted therapy out there. Uh, and that's something that I probably should try at some point. Um, most of my, uh, counseling has been post ketamine session. Hey, let's review kind of what you went through, what you experienced, uh, and what do you think is the message that it was trying to tell you? And I'll give you an example, Leo. Um, I've I've had ketamine in two different states. I've had it via nasal route and via the IV route. And one of my first sessions via the IV route, I saw a perfect image of my late father in a car seat reaching around to me as I felt like I was a little boy and he was extending his hand out to me and telling me everything was, yeah, he, he actually wasn't saying anything. He was just extending his hand out to me to hold my hand. And uh, I remember talking about that in therapy uh, with my therapist after that appointment. And she asked me, what do you feel like your father was trying to tell you during that ketamine session? And I said, I feel like my father was telling me everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. You just got to keep fighting and moving forward and just keep doing what you're doing. So. That's one of the beautiful things that can happen with, with ketamine. I, I love it. Is there any part of your journey that we haven't discussed that you think would be of value to listeners? Um, I think, you know, ketamine is not a silver bullet. There's no silver bullet out there, but you got to find what works for you and you got to keep trying and finding what what you know mode of 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 whatever whether it be antidepressants therapy exercise whatever you've got to continue adding to your toolbox and seeing because i went through 20 something years of using antidepressants with little to no impact and it wasn't until i was in my late 40s that i tried ketamine that i actually saw some some tangible improvement so we just got to keep trying I love it. Keep adding to your toolbox. And then the penultimate question, you know what's coming because you're a listener mm -hmm. of the podcast. Always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Ryan? I would say I've been there. I know what the struggle is like. And I know how deep and painful things can be. But I had you know, I had a therapist one time tell me, you know, taking one day at a time may seem too hard. Uh, if you can take one minute at a time, take one hour at a time and, and just remember that, um, things can change in an instant and you just got to keep, keep trying, keep moving forward and that suicide is not the answer. And last question, 
What are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? Um, I'm looking forward to my walk and uh, getting out and, and seeing new things. <laughs> I appreciate you, Brian. Thank you for being yeah. here. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling the 988 or any of the 800 numbers that are listed in all the show notes. You can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Brian. Anytime, Leo. I appreciate it.